truth, truth and justice are on our side. We're seeking them. We've adopted a method of nonviolence. We expect violence against us. This is, uh, if we're effective, it's going to be that violence, but we're not going to let that deter us. Si se puede. Si se puede. This is a mantra that will live on forever, based on comunidad coming together and standing for what's right for people who have no voice. Welcome to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. My guest today is Genoveva Islas, the executive director and founder and president of Cultiva La Salud. Cultiva is dedicated to creating healthy communities in the San Joaquin Valley by fostering policies, systems, and environmental movements to allow for greater access to healthy foods and beverages and increased opportunities for physical activity. Cultiva's efforts also focus on building community leadership so that the residents can be more effective in advocating for healthy changes in their communities. Genoveva holds a Bachelor's of Science in Health Science with an emphasis in community health from California State University, Fresno. Go Bulldogs! And a Master's in Public Health degree in Health Education and Promotion from Loma Linda University. Genoveva is recognized as a culture of health leader by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and an Aspen Institute Healthy Communities Fellow. Genoveva was appointed by the Governor Brown to serve on the California Partnership for the San Joaquin Valley Board and previously was also appointed to serve on the Health Benefit Exchange Board of California. That's covered CA. Genoveva currently serves as a Fresno Unified School District board member, which she also upheld the change of the mascot change at Fresno High School, and she represents Area 4, the McLean region. All right, let's get started with this podcast. Si se puede. It's so nice to have you on Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. I love the story of how you are presenting healthy initiatives, but not only that, your activism in the community. And, you know, I was put in touch with you through my family, which is very connected with you. But I want to hear your story of your journey because a lot of us don't get to share what was that pivotal moment or they don't see enough of us that, you know, we've come from those same experiences or maybe they were a little different. But the whole point of the podcast is I say wisdom comes from everywhere because I'm trying to help, like you, build a bridge to those that are coming forward and learn from our experiences because if we don't share or not have a talking at you moment, it's a collaboration discussion because we're setting the groundwork, which other folks have set the groundwork for us. Or maybe we're just pioneers in our own way. So welcome. And I want to hear your story. Thanks for wanting to hear it. I love sharing my family story and my personal journey. And I commend you for documenting that because you're right. I don't think there are enough of our stories that are out there for younger generations to hear. And, and there's a lot of need. There's a lot of need to motivate our children and our families to do good. And I think that uh, these powerful stories are part of that. 
I was born in Fresno in 1969. My mother was, I'm not sure that she was uh, actually documented at that time. Mm -hmm. um, she certainly was not uninsured. My parents were living in a small rural community, Orange Cove, California. Oh. And Fresno University Medical Center, as it's known now, Valley Medical Center, as it was known then, mm -hmm. uh, was the birth hospital for people who did not have health insurance. My mom's pregnancy was a little high risk. And so she had to make the track from when she was ready to deliver to move by speeding car, speeding bullet, however she could to get, you know, from Orange Cove to Fresno. Mm -hmm. I was delivered cesarean. But I think that that sort of vulnerability is, is really where my story begins, right? I do come from a very impoverished family. My parents were farm workers. Both of them came to the U.S. as young uh, men and women. They met here in Fresno at a dance at the Rainbow Ballroom. I know the Rainbow Ballroom. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the, the story of the ballroom is very prominent because it was one of the few places where Spanish music could be played and where Latinos could gather. So mm -hmm. there are quite a lot of family stories that begin at the Rainbow Ballroom. I know that place. It's infamous. It was a beautiful place. I remember a lot of quinceañeras are held there. I don't know if it's still happening, but there's a lot down there, especially downtown. So yeah. uh, my grandmother always took me downtown and we used to go down and visit the Fulton Mall all the time. Yes. And I have such warm memories back then walking the Fulton Mall with her and shopping or just doing the, the stroll. Yeah, it was a nice outdoor place. I remember uh, going with my sister for her quinceanera to Luftenberg's. That was one of the quinceanera shops in yeah. downtown Fresno. Yeah, mm -hmm. very yeah. well known. And also just that feeling of being in a space where there were uh, people like us, right? Shopping, gathering, being with family. My cousins were cholos. And uh -huh. Fresno used to be the place where we would come to get the Dickies, khakis, uh -huh. right? Your Mary Jane uh, shoes with the the roses embroidered at I the toes. Love those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I wish I could. I wish I had a pair. We we used to wear them out. Well, you can buy them in Chinatown now. A lot of Chinatown still carries all the Mary Janes. So no, really, like the shopping is a part of my family story, right? Like all these places, these ethnic locations that my mother or grandmother would go for their regular shopping. And it was specifically because these retailers had a interest to sell to them, right? Like my family felt received. Back in, in 1969, you know, we were at the height of the farm worker movement. There was still a lot of, as there continues to be, a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment, right? Yes. And so our community wasn't always made to feel welcome everywhere they went. I can remember a story about my grandmother was getting care and my mother, it was her mother-in-law, my grandmother, and my grandmother was on the exam room table and the doctor instructed her to sit up. And when my grandmother reached for his arm to pull herself up, he pushed her arm away <gasps> and he went and he got a towel and put it over his arm and then let her touch him that way. He did not want to be touched directly by uh, wow. this immigrant woman, right? And my mom was so furious, right? Like mm -hmm. she was just like, you know, she doesn't even need to touch you. I'll help her. Mm -hmm. But those are unfortunate stories and traumas do get told. And so it does raise you with this sense about we are different and we mm -hmm. have to be careful. 
I was an interpreter for my family. So I often interpreted at doctor's appointments, at school meetings, in social service appointments. And I think for me, that was also eye-opening and very orienting to my future. Because what I experienced as a child was that these systems weren't set up to serve my community, right? Right. That they weren't thoughtful in having bilingual Spanish speakers in Mm -hmm. receptionist areas, that there weren't enough of us in professional positions, doctors or nurses, in order to serve my community. And so I think that did inspire something about the injustice of that, the injustice of having a child serve as an interpreter and as an interpreter in very sensitive medical situations. I had to interpret for one of my mother's and father's compadres and he had testicular cancer. Like you can imagine a a 12 year old trying to insert herself in that type of conversation. So those were my experiences. Um, I was the first in my family to attend college, the first woman to graduate from high school. And I felt very proud about that, right? Like Mm -hmm. I felt very proud of intentionally sort of rewarding my parents for their hard work, getting up every day in the heat and the sun and picking fruits and vegetables. As a child, I felt a real sense of responsibility that I couldn't let their labor be in vain, that I needed to do good in order to show them that their sacrifices did realize in something better for their children. I graduated from Fresno State. I got my master's degree in public health from Loma Linda University. I was a young mother, so I think what's an important segment of our story is that we can live through struggle. We can triumph through struggles, right? And being a a teen mom was certainly not easy, but I was able to graduate high school. I was able to go on and stay on track and get my bachelor's degree. I was able to get a master's degree. So I think that it took a lot of resource and support to get me through all of that, but there was a path, right? And I hope that anybody that's listening to this as a young woman who maybe happens to be a mother, that she realizes that you too can do it, right? That it may take a little bit longer. You may have to work a little bit harder, but you can do it. And you can become a school board trustee like me too, right? And and aspiring to continue to do more. So I think I certainly wasn't born to privilege. I certainly know what it's like to work hard. My very first job was as a farm worker alongside Mm -hmm. my mother. Mm-hmm. And I progressed then to working in fast food restaurants while I was in college. And then eventually I landed my first real career job working at a clinic in Madeira. And then from there, it, I kept maximizing opportunities. Now I'm the executive director of a small nonprofit, and I'm very proud of our work to serve community. We're, we're working a lot of COVID response work right now. But in many ways, and, and as you mentioned, even in, in the decisions and the votes that I get to take at school board, right? Like it's very rewarding to me to be in a position where I can make a difference. Right. And I think that's the path that you talk about. It doesn't matter how long you get there. It's just if you have the desire and the goal based on your experiences and also the change of purpose that comes with that feeling. And just to revert back to your experience having to interpret in a medical facility mm-hmm. at a young age, that's so much pressure on a young child to speak to an adult who does not look like you, who's probably male at that time and white, and you're trying Mm -hmm. to explain, and they're looking at you. I mean, I can't even imagine that feeling. And yet that is an impressionable moment for a lot of 
Latinos, Latinx out there that have that experience or first generation. And when they come from that experience, that has already elevated you to how to communicate between what we call code switching, how you know how to communicate with certain groups of folks versus your own community. And it gives you a level up. And so this is one thing that I always talk about with other guests is that we have so much experience from our families, our communities that are really our superpowers and yet they don't get recognized. And we have to champion those parts of our character in our business or even in our schools and communities to say, hey, I can do this. I know how to do this and believe in yourself because it's really hard. I know I've been through that myself and I, I had that for a long time when I was in tech. You don't see people like you, so you feel you have to be like them. And then they don't recognize you for your skill set because you are in a different scenario, which they've always known and you're trying to fit in. But you didn't do that. You persevered. And that's why I love having you on the show, because when I went to school, you know, I went to Fresno High, right? Then we can talk about Fresno High because you being on the school board, you know, with the mascot issue that just came up. And by the way, they passed that. That says a lot. When I was at high school back then, to the changing times of what's happening today. And I want to talk about how community drives those discussions because I feel that a lot of folks feel that they don't have a voice in community. So can you talk a little bit about that to us and how community really influences these decisions in community? Because some people feel that, oh, why bother? They're like, ah, chale, you know, it doesn't matter. Right? right? I never have right. a, a voice. Yeah, there is a lot we have to work through in terms of all of the negative experiences our communities have endured. I think that part of that is elevating consciousness about the injustice. Mm-hmm. When one person suffers something, uh, it's very easy to internalize it as, oh, it was my bad luck or my family's bad luck, right? But then when you realize that same thing is happening to many more families that look like you, that are like you. I'll give you one example that was a really impressionable example in my youth as well. I can remember being in high school and the salesman came to my parents' door and was telling them about how they needed to get a water filter because Wasco had poor water quality. Mm -hmm. My parents were very low income. I remember filling out my college application and my parents' combined income combined was $13,000. That was the toll of how much they made when I first started college. And this man was selling a water purifier. It was actually a water softener. It wasn't even a water purifier. That was like a $5,000 cost. But because they had convinced my parent that the water quality was so bad and that if they were good parents, they would want to make sure that their children had access to clean water. There was nothing wrong with the water quality of Fresno in comparison to many other rural communities. He was predatory. He was a predator and he caused my family to get into debt over something that they absolutely didn't need by ill-informing them. And it's been one of the regrets of my life, right, that I didn't Mm -hmm. have the knowledge or the insight at that point to advocate better for my family. And so what I've learned later since then is how many other families he preyed upon, right, in order to get sales, right, that Mm -hmm. also ended up ruining their credit over this water softener. 
And and that that story continues in many other ways when we also think about solar panels and the debt that families. My mother at 87 was approached by somebody who told her that the government was requiring everybody to get oh solar panels. God. And this was in Fresno? This was in Wasco where she oh, lived. Okay, right? okay. But this is many years after the experience with the water softener. So my mother learned a little bit and she tells everybody that comes to her door now, I can't make a decision. You have to talk to my daughter, right? So she uh, <laughs> lets me intercede with her. But the point being, your question about building power, Teresa, I think is about building consciousness about that these things are injustices that we shouldn't allow to happen. Mm-hmm. And part of what affects us as Latinos is the fact that many in our community are shackled from voting, right? Because of irregular documentation, right? They don't have a legal uh, residency or they're undocumented. And so it is important for us to build consciousness. When I was growing up, because my parents weren't citizens, they couldn't vote. We never talked about ballots. We never talked about about the election. And I didn't see my parents role modeling voting. So it wasn't until I was in college that I understood that this was a right and that I should participate in it. And many children are growing up in homes like that, Mm -hmm. where they're not having the adults in their home modeling uh, civic engagement. And so they aren't civically engaged. So we have to find a way to engage all the Latinos, let them know about the importance of their exercising their right to vote informing them on issues that are affecting our community, and then working on the other end of that candle, and it's about immigration reform, so that more of our families have an opportunity to vote and let their voices be heard, and that they also can hold their elected officials accountable. Um, so I feel that's one of the services that we need to do for our community. Absolutely. I mean, that is, they say boots on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. You got to mobilize, you got to organize. And that's one of the things that it's very apparent that as a community, if we're stronger together, we are a force to be reckoned with. And I'll just bring it back to Georgia right now, because so many folks of color came out to vote to change things that flipped the seats in the house to get the things that we need in our communities. Now there is voter suppression, but it's not going to stop because you have to stay focused and you have to stay engaged. And this is what you're bringing to the table here to talk about is that if we organize our voices collectively, but how do we do this? Because I know a lot of folks, they feel like the system's rigged. No, but if you register, but I don't go to college, I don't understand. I just vote for the president or he's not me or, you know, there's all these excuses. But when you make the excuse that it's never going to change and there's no change from how we see things to organize in community, then there's a stuckness, I think. Mm-hmm. You can go down a spiral. So mm-hmm. how would you suggest that people become engaged and organized when they feel they're hopeless? Because I know, I know that feeling, you know, a lot of folks do in those communities. It's like, where's the light, right? And hopefully they hear this and I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I can totally relate to all of those comments, you know, and I'll offer that my husband didn't vote in any presidential election until there was a president that looked like him because he's Mm -hmm. African-American. Like Mm -hmm. he didn't feel that in any way, shape or form, any president or congressman or assemblyman Mm -hmm. was really interested in his issues, right? In Mm -hmm. the things that were affecting him and his family. And I think in the same way, we certainly as Latinos have a large number 
But it doesn't mean that every elected official who's Latino is representing the needs in community. Correct. I think that our community members that are suffering from the lack of clean water in their homes, the community residents that don't have the parks that they need for their kids to be physically active, those residents who care about what's being offered as school meals, they have to take those concerns and they have to become passionate about it and engage. Mm -hmm. And voting is one thing, right? And we certainly know that in our population, it's been a way of voter suppression by not creating an immigration system that works. And I'm very, very inspired by the activism in Georgia and the Mm -hmm. turnout because I think it's demonstrative of what we can do if we work together, right? Right. So I would say some of these things that we've already covered, having greater engagement with Latinos as soon as they're able to vote. So that means a campaign and efforts that are really targeting our community and Mm -hmm. making sure that they're exercising their rights. I feel like championing and creating more consciousness around those issues that are affecting them. You know, we're a small nonprofit here in Fresno. I, I certainly make an effort to outreach around the things that I know are affecting the poor health of Latinos and low income community members. So we have campaigns that relate to issues around active transportation policy and the Mm -hmm. importance of investing in sidewalks and streetlights and parks. We have campaigns where we have talked about the importance of everybody having access to healthy meals and we allow that to be driven by the residents themselves. So we are not going into communities and saying, hey, you need to make sure you have a farmer's market in your neighborhood. Like we ask them what would be the most utility for them? Like, is it a grocery store? Is it a community garden? Is it a farmer's market? Like, what are the ways that you would like to see increase in in infrastructure and resources to create greater access to healthy food? So I think offering people choice and experience is really important. We operate a leadership program. And so that leadership program allows us to bring cohorts of people together and really educate them around these cycles of advocacy. And because they're working as a collective, it's a lot easier than, say, telling one person like, okay, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to schedule a meeting with your city council member and you're going to go to that city council member and start telling them everything that's going wrong, right? That can be very intimidating for somebody who's never actualized their civic rights in that way. But Mm -hmm. if you can do it as a cohort, if those people can then meet as a group and if other people in that group are like-minded and they share the same interests and want to see the same outcomes, then they can advocate together. So I think leadership development, early engagement, leadership development are, are really important. And it doesn't have to be an academic leadership development program. Right, right. Like, we break down policy where we tell people like, who makes the decision about what car you're going to purchase in your home, right? Like, right. how do you sway your husband about the, the type <laughs> of, you know, car you want to buy? Like, that's advocacy, right? And so right. to think about it in, in more simple terms, and then just to let them know that these people that are elected, they're not gods, right? Like, they're right. average everyday people that are elected by them who, you know, if they're paid a salary are being paid by their tax dollars. And so they're beholding to them and that they should be working for the community. I think the more we demystify and make simple what we mean by civic engagement and by holding decision makers accountable, I think in the end really helps us. Of course, we need to remove a lot of those policies that impede people, like what we're seeing now with voter suppression in Georgia. Just craziness. You can't give someone water as you're in line to vote. Ridiculous. 
So why are we talking about this episode today of Fresno healthy communities and why the access to food and advocating for those that have no voice? Because we need to elevate the voices and communities that serve us. And during COVID, it is especially important. So what we're trying to do at latinasb2b.marketing is to elevate more businesses and nonprofits with the voice like this platform to champion those and to keep their message going out globally across the nation. And so people can find their voice with my guests on these podcasts. If you're interested in learning more about latinasb2b.marketing, you can go to that exact address, latinasb2b.marketing to learn more. Gracias. And that's one thing I want to talk about is the food advocacies that are created in communities of, well, just poverty-stricken communities, food deserts, and how that policy making and how it's not championed that It blows my mind that when you go to the west side of Fresno now, I remember when I was little with my grandma and we would go to down in Chinatown, there was like the markets and we'd go buy fresh vegetables or the community markets that were in the neighborhood at the time when I was really little. And we could go there and buy fresh vegetables and food. There was even like a milk place I remember around the corner from her, which was crazy to me. There were these things that could serve the community. And now you find liquor stores, you find potato chips and sodas and, you know, because they're cheap. Why is it that you can pay 99 cents for a hamburger, but if you want to buy a head of lettuce and tomatoes, it costs $5? There's something wrong there. And I know that this is your advocacy for health and policy and voting to change these things. So I know that's a big topic. And yeah, I'm asking you to boil it down to like some really yes. nice nuggets here. But yeah. <laughs> well, let me just say that, you know, one of the quotes that I'm always moved by um, Cesar Chavez, and we just celebrated, you know, mm-hmm. his day of honor, his holiday 31st. He has this very powerful quote, and I'm not going to remember it verbatim, but he basically says, what a shame it is that those people who till the soil and harvest the produce often do not have enough for their own tables. And yes. it's, it's very true, right? Like I see that um, I've lived it and, and I, I see that day to day in the communities that we engage. You know, this issue around our broken food system is very real. It is very severe and it really creates uh, very disparate outcomes. So, um, you know, imagine for a minute, if you will, a family that lives by one of the fields growing the produce here in the Central Valley. That family if they try to cross the street to pick an orange, can be fined. It's illegal, right? That orange likely won't make it to the small little corner market that exists in their rural Mm -hmm. community because all of that good produce that we grow is exported out. It's part of 
um, agribusiness here mm -hmm. in the Central Valley. Mm -hmm. So by the time it's exported out, you know, and if it ever makes its way back, it's probably going to make its way back to a big box store, certainly not these very small rural communities. Meanwhile, that um, same family is being exposed to the pesticides that's being sprayed over that orchard. That same family is going to have um, the water quality in their wells contaminated because mm -hmm. of those unsustainable agricultural practices. That same family is going to have to go to that convenience store to purchase water. They're going to pay for a 20-ounce bottle of water, $1.99, but they can buy two liters of Diet Coke or Coke or mm -hmm. Pepsi's for, you know, a dollar. And so this is an example for me of how we make the unhealthy foods really accessible to poor people, because just by sheer economics, they're not right. going to buy the water. So, you know, we were, we were thinking about this hypothetical family living here in the, the valley floor in the San Joaquin Valley and all that they're being exposed to because of the um, poor agricultural practices and how that family, if they are farm laborers, are being exploited and they don't have a very high income, right? And they're having to make a choices about which foods they can purchase that they can afford. And like you rightly pointed out, it costs us a lot more to pull a carrot out of the ground than it does to make a bag of chips. And so consequently, that chip that has a longer shelf life is likely to be at their small uh, convenience store. A lot of other processed food items and not so much fresh fruits and vegetables that, again, could be grown across the street in the fields that they live near. And so I feel it, it is a huge injustice. And then consider that family will eventually develop chronic illness, whether it be heart disease or diabetes. Their elders will begin to suffer diabetes complications where they won't be able to continue to be productive. Mm -hmm. And though the good news is that there will be a dialysis center because we have growing dialysis centers throughout the San Joaquin Valley. In Isn't order that crazy? To, it is because they're responding to the level of diabetes and chronic disease that is experienced here, here in the fruit and vegetable bowl of California and arguably our nation. So Yes, our food system is broken in many ways, and in many ways, we're in for a long, long fight in order to fix it. At the school district, I'm trying to promote local procurement where we would purchase more um, locally grown fruits and vegetables. That'll help improve our menu. It will also create an investment back into our local economy. It'll also help our farmers who ultimately can employ for longer term and create more stability for farm workers. It'll decrease the amount of miles that our food will have to travel in order to get to our school plates. So there's a lot of policies, right? Like there's a lot of uh, different ways to configure the food system so we can actually see more benefit from that, both in terms of our health as well as our economy. Right. And again, if you mobilize here on the ground level with such a large community, it's like a groundswell that will go up up to the to the higher channels because as you said the ag business is very entwined into the government system and how all this processed food really came about into communities is really interesting i did a little bit of research and i actually saw this engineering show about how they really created these processed foods for the military because they needed the shelf life And they needed the fats and sustainability for people abroad so that they had food 
and they could sustain themselves. Well, when you have all that food systems and there's a gluttony of them that's just left over, how do they process that into back into the system? So it's really interesting that I saw this and my mind was blown and craft is a real big perpetrator of that. So you think about the corporations, you know, all these big companies out there and it's really just puts the spike in to make a footnote to say, "Wow, this has been going on for a long time. You may not know it, but it has been in the corporate mindset for such a long time. There's so much research that goes into that. So, when we talk about food policy and advocacy, and then here we are at the ground level where a lot of folks are picking the fruit and the vegetables and here we are being given the processed foods as, you know, an alternative it really kind of, you know, stretches your idea like how do I get involved to stop this because that's what's hurting community and how do we I know it goes back to education, right? Everything goes back to education, but tell us again about the public health and it seems like it just revolves around the communities going down economically, but the, it's a whole system, but again it comes to voting. I mean, it's all intertwined. I'm sorry. I'm going down a I'm going down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> it it is very incestuous, right? Like it it is all interconnected and you know, one example that I was sharing today is how hard it is actually to organize against these um corporate interests like Big Dairy and Big Ag because mm-hmm. they employ farm workers. Yes. Right? And farm workers who need the limited income that they're gaining are really unlikely to challenge their employer, right? Like even though they consciously know right. that that employer's practices are what is creating pollution in their community. You know, there's a, a dicho que recently I, I heard uh, one of our farm workers in a focus group say, I don't know what'll kill me first, hunger or the virus, right? Wow. And because it is that level of sort of precariousness and mm-hmm. uh vulnerability that mm-hmm. many uh, in our community are at. So definitely there is a lot of profit that's being generated, right? Like the Fresno is often identified for its poverty, but in truth there is a lot of wealth that's generated here off of the backs mm-hmm. of poor people, right? Exactly. And if it's the exploitation of their labor, but now it's also profiting off of their poor health as in the example of the growing dialysis centers. So I would say that you know the the best thing that we as a community can do is to eat healthy right to purchase those locally grown fruits and vegetables that helps our small farmers stay in business that will help ourselves in terms of better nutrition i think it helps us when more parents are advocating at school district and institutional levels wanting to see healthier items on school menus it will create the type of pressure that will force policy changes in terms of those procurement practices at institutional levels and i think we've seen the power of campaigns that are about fair trade right like we we hear about fair trade coffee i think in the same way we need to think about fair trade fruits and vegetables right like mm-hmm. how are we honoring the workers that yes. are picking the fruits and vegetables through good wages and benefits earlier you were talking about how hard farm workers have had to fight for basic rights and i i just want to pull out that farm workers only recently got overtime pay 
right? Like it was right. just like a couple of years ago that there was legislation passed to give them overtime, right? Like why is this population not even being allowed compensation for the extra hours that they're working? It's because there was intended exploitation, right? Mm -hmm. That um, prevented that. I can remember during my parents' time, there was a fight to give um, farm workers the dignity for to not have to work stooped over for their entire workday with a short-handled hoe, right? Like that policy happened in the 1960s where they were allowed to use the, the longer-handled hoe. So I do think that there's been progress, but it's been progress because there's been leaders, because there's been champions who have been giving voice to the injustice, and that there have been solutions that they have been asking for that become realized. And I think we just need to keep building on that. But I don't think that we should delay, right? Like, I, I don't think that our community should procrastinate. I, I think that they need to give voice and they need to fight and get involved so that justice can be realized sooner. But yes, there's a lot to be fixed in the food system. Oh my goodness. It's like, where do you begin? So that brings me to the point of promotoras that we talked about a little bit. There seems to be an intersection there, maybe in community that is, it's starting I don't know if it's with your organization, but I've seen other organizations talking about promotoras. And I don't know if we can elaborate on that or see how it's intertwined yeah. into your nonprofit, if it is. But I, I think it is. I was reading about it the other day, and I think it's great. Anyway, if you can expand on that, that would be awesome. Yes. So Cultiva La Salud has worked with promotores in different projects. So we had, for example, have had for a number of years promotores who have done nutrition education and community. So these are our workers who make connections with people at a grocery store because they know them in some capacity and they'll host a nutrition class in someone's backyard and will teach things around building consciousness about sugar consumption or salt intake. We'll talk about the importance of having a variety, eating a variety of fruits and vegetables. Uh, they'll showcase healthy recipes, right? So that's been one way we've, where we've used promotores. In a similar way, we've had health ambassadors who have helped to be navigators for people in letting them know where health insurance can be got, like how to navigate healthcare systems so that people can get all of the services they receive those are other models. Um, right now, we're working with promotores as community health workers, and they're in community providing education and prevention messages around COVID. So mm. COVID transmission, COVID prevention, they're giving hand sanitizer, they're giving masks. Um, we're targeting vulnerable residents in rural communities, farm working residents. My staff as promotores have also been involved at testing sites where they're there um, providing interpretation and translation. They are involved in contact tracing. So in language, uh, identifying who someone may have been in contact with that could have been exposed. My staff are also involved in providing isolation and quarantine support. So we have a fund through CARES Act dollars through the County of Fresno, where we're able to give a family that is uh, positive up to $1,200 so that they can afford to isolate 
for the 14 days uh, in order to prevent the spread of COVID. And most recently, what we're being involved in as our staff as promotoras are working on mobile vaccine clinics that are going into rural communities. So we do outreach, letting them know that the vaccine clinic is there. We staff it. We help people register. We inform them about what to expect post uh, injection. And then we're doing follow-up to make sure they come back for their second dose. So promotores are an incredible way to work with community residents who are well-connected, who have the trust in community, who are culturally and linguistically competent, who can deliver these messages or services to a, in a much more intimate level than any government institution or education institution could do on their own. Right. And I think we're seeing the proof of the value of promotores because they're turning out people. You know, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I asked one of my staff who is a longtime resident of Parlier to announce that we were doing our first mobile vaccine clinic. I kid you not, within three hours, she had a list of 80 residents that were eligible for their first dose. Nice. And that list were the first 80 people that we registered. So think about that. Think about the power of investing in local community residents to be part of our public health infrastructure, to be part of our education infrastructure, to be part of our healthcare infrastructure. It would be transformed you know, we would help to reach the hard to reach in a systematic way that would allow us to address many of the challenges that we're confronting as a nation in this society. You are doing the most unbelievable of God's work. It is just amazing to me. And listening to the intersection of your journey and how it's impacted you. And then here we are with the promotores and and how you're working with communities now and bringing all those forces of information together to promote advocacy and boots on the ground that you don't have to stand on the sideline. You can be here. And one of the things that a lot of folks are just really hesitant to, to do is to be involved. And we're saying, don't be afraid. Don't push yourself past that, even if it's to volunteer or even if it's just to register to vote, or even if it's to go to your local community store and say, hey, why don't we have any fresh fruits or vegetables here? This is the time to speak up. And I think this is a phenomenal moment for all of us right now in community to really rise. And I, I want to talk briefly just about how... I know we feel limited and stifled, but with you and advocacy and knowing how we can just, you know, take the first step, you are a policymaker, a policy advocacy champion. How do we get to that place? I know it just take the first step, but what would you say? Because I think we talked about so many things and COVID right now is a huge impact in our communities. There's still a lot of hesitancy, which I do understand but it's understanding where to go to for information. So how, how can we champion the right message and community to unite in, in advocacy for this? Because it's really hurting us on all the levels we just talked about. Yeah, I would say that the successes that we've had has been when we help community residents who have never been advocates have an experience to see what it is like, what it entails. I had this really vivid memory of one of our first leadership participants. 
and she was predominantly Spanish speaking and she was doing a presentation in front of the school district. Well, we had public health department staff there and at that point the public health director joined because we were advocating for healthy school meals and she invited him up to interpret for her because he was also Spanish speaking. And for me it was just like, oh my gosh, like she's activated, right? Like she's using the resources at her disposal in order to make sure that her message is being heard. And I think it's that. It's that resident now has been unstoppable, right? Like she's mm -hmm. continued in her advocacy, but it was like this experience in this one campaign that helped her see how she could use her voice to create change. You know, we've had participants that are now school board members in their own right. Many of our leadership participants have been on committees and commissions, planning commissions, transportation commissions. And it is because again, you can foster and build that advocacy by giving people a real experience. Sometimes it seems very removed, right? Like, oh, that's for people with education or that's for people who speak English, right? And so so I think when you can break it down into simple terms, when you can help them see how do you identify the issue that you want to see changed? What is the change you want to see? Who's the decision maker who has the power to help you in creating that change? And then how do you bring more people with you in asking for action? I think once they sort of understand Understand that in in simple terms, then it's easier for them to replicate it on their own without a necessarily an activist supporting them, right? So I think for me, those have been the examples of it can be done, and mm -hmm. it can be done with very marginalized, English-limited individuals. Just creating the opportunities for them to learn has tremendous benefits. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to work with you or volunteer or? Where are the resources for them to reach out to you? So I'm the executive director of Cultiva La Salud, and mm -hmm. our direct line is 4980870. People are welcome to call. You can email me at genoveva at Cultiva La Salud. Right now, we're very involved in COVID work. So if there's people out there that are interested in doing more of that support work, we're also doing a lot of food delivery to vulnerable seniors, uh, undocumented seniors who don't have a lot of resources at this time. And so if you're interested in serving community in that way, then we certainly could create a volunteer opportunity. And I'm open to ideas, right? Like you may be a Latino out there who's really passionate about something that, mm -hmm. that we haven't engaged in, right? And so I'm I'm happy to talk to you about what way we could support that or if there's a grant opportunity to fund it and work collaboratively with you on it. There's no doors closed. I think if it's a partnership that we can do directly, we're open to it. And maybe it isn't in our wheelhouse, but I certainly am connected to other advocates that maybe I could refer you to. To, to work on something. So yeah, feel free to, to reach out anybody that may be interested. That's really powerful because that just says your door is always open and there's no limits and building up is, is what you do. And I love that so much. Well, I just want to thank you, Henoviva, for joining me today. This was very impactful for, for me. It's always, I'm learning more and more Every time I talk to my guests and everything that's happening in community, I'm always wanting to give people this platform and people are listening and people don't know that, you know, it's a serious matter here. And when we come together, the voice is strong. And I want to give you a chance to cover anything that you feel we didn't cover. I would just say that, you know, people should never give up. 
right? Like sometimes it's a little bit hard to get to your dream in the immediate. And sometimes you do have to work a little bit harder for it. But if you're truly fixed and focused on that and put in the work, I think that all dreams can be realized. And so I I don't want anybody to ever lose hope. Reach out also. Like it's really important to be open to getting help and asking for help. Never be ashamed to ask for help because we've all come through different avenues where we've certainly needed and benefited from help. So any young listener that's out there, I would just say, you know, to never give up on yourself. I'm 52 years old and I refuse to give up on myself. Never. It's the ongoing challenge and we just got to find our people right yeah. to support yeah. us thank you Heno Veva for joining us on Latinas from the block to the boardroom if you'd like to learn more about Cultiva La Salud you can reach out to Heno Veva at cultivalasalud.org also I'd like to dedicate this podcast to Fresno Fresno is my hometown, which Henoveva currently is working in and championing communities to be healthier and to also make sure that they have policies and advocacy for those essential workers. This podcast was also engineered by Robert Lopez of Mixed by Crates. Gracias and have a wonderful day.